Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC, and today I'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 state, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then from Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? No, God created them good and in his own image. That is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness, to praise and glorify him. Then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are conceived and born in a sinful condition. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. In his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Neil Plantinga begins with a summary of the movie Grand Canyon. In this movie, an immigration lawyer grows impatient as he waits in a traffic jam. He wants to get home, so he exits the highway for some side streets. It's nighttime, and his new brings him down streets that grow darker and emptier. Mile after frightening mile, he passes abandoned factories, burned out houses, and empty lots. Then his nightmare occurred. His expensive car stalls. So he has to leave the comfort of his car to find a payphone. He finds one and calls for a tow truck. As he heads back to his stalled-out car, members from a local gang arrive and surround him. They bully and then threaten the lawyer. But just in time, the tow truck shows up. The gang backs away and the driver begins attaching ropes and hooks from his truck to the disabled car. But as they watch the tow truck driver do his work, the gang starts protesting. Their fun was being spoiled. They confront the tow truck driver, but the driver takes the leader of the gang aside. They start going back and forth. Finally, exasperated, the driver says, Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. 
Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. That phrase, the world is not the way it's supposed to be, captures a truth we all know so well. We know it from experience, from reading the news and following the headlines. This past week, our country passed 500,000 deaths due to COVID. Last week, millions went without water and power in Texas and the surrounding areas. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. We also know this from our personal lives. We know the pain of death, misfortune, and loss. We know the pain of failure. We know the hurt of being betrayed. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That is a reality the ancient Israelites knew as well. Whether they were of the generation that made bricks from straws as, as slaves in Egypt, or endured the painful reality of being an exiled people, the Israelites knew that things were not as they were meant to be. Genesis 3 was written in part to explain to them, and to us, why everything went bad, why things are so broken and messed up today. Yet things shouldn't be so messed up. As the Catechism states, did God create people so wicked and perverse? No, God created them good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify him. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden so that they could enjoy this original goodness. There they were meant to enjoy the presence of God as they went about tending and caring for the garden. There they could keep on enjoying this blessed existence, provided that they heeded God's command. As Genesis chapter 2 states, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That mysterious, frustrating tree. As long as they didn't eat from that tree, everything would be the way it was supposed to be. But if they ate from that tree, the world would become not the way it's supposed to be. How could this tree have this much power? What is the knowledge the fruit of this tree possessed? The fruit of that tree contained knowledge of good and evil, but what exactly is that knowledge? What does that mean? It makes me wonder. It makes me curious. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Magician's Nephew, wrote about the troubling aspects of curiosity. In this novel, Polly and Diggory travel to another world, a strange, odd world where everything is illuminated by a dusty red light, even though the sky above is pitch black. Polly and Diggory find themselves in what appears to be an endless maze of ruins. There are no signs of life, no weeds or any green anywhere, and not a noise can be heard. 
They begin to explore, traveling through great stone hallways, passing under great stone arches, in and out of great courtyards. After what seemed like a very long time, they came upon two very large, heavy doors. They opened the doors and entered a very long hallway, lined on either side by statues. In the middle of that hallway, they came upon a square pillar about four feet high. On this pillar was a golden arch from which hung a golden bell. Below the bell lay a little golden hammer for striking the bell. Upon seeing this, Diggory immediately began to wonder. Then Polly noticed that something was written on the pillar. They both kneeled down, trying to figure out what it said. At last, they could make it out. It said, Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have fouled if you had. Well, it drove Diggory mad. He found he really wanted to know what would happen regardless of the danger. Though his sister protested, he overpowered her, grabbed the hammer, and struck the bell. As soon as he struck it, the ruins began to crumble all around them. Just as in the story, so also the tree of knowledge of good and evil makes me wonder, and I suppose it made Adam and Eve curious as well. A curiosity exploited by the serpent devil, who made them wonder what they were missing out on by not eating the forbidden fruit. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Even though she had paradise, by this question Eve was made to wonder. The woman replied, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil, by this statement, twisted God's gracious warning into a riddle that would drive Adam and Eve's curiosity mad. It made them forget God's gracious warning. There was a reason God forbade eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a reason why God, God said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Neil Plantinga in his book, Reading for Preaching, writes, When I was a boy, I always imagined that these mysterious words were a test of Adam and Eve's obedience and maybe an arbitrary one. But what if the words are a gracious warning? What if God's prohibition is like that on an electrical power station? Danger, high voltage, keep out. But even with this gracious warning in place, Adam and Eve, now madly curious, wanted to know what they didn't have. They were made to want forbidden knowledge. In wanting what was forbidden, Eve and Adam soon acted. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This story and the mysterious tree in particular, I have found acts as a mirror of sorts. It reveals a part of myself I really don't like to look at or gaze at. It acts like a mirror that reveals what we want. I have come to see that this mysterious tree helps us answer a most basic and essential question. What do you want? It helps us see that what we want might not be quite what we think either. This question is explored in the Russian science fiction film Stalker. In that film, a man by the name of Stalker leads a writer and a professor on a journey into a mysterious zone, a kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland that contains an even more mysterious room. It was that room that they were after. That room is where they wanted to go. For in the room, they would get whatever their hearts desired. In that room, their dreams would come true and they would get what they wanted. When they finally arrived at the room, the writer and the professor who had hired Stalker to lead them to this place hesitate. They aren't sure if they want to step into that room after all. As Jamie Smith explains in his book, You Are What You Love, Professor and writer hesitate because it dawns on them, what if I don't know what I want? A disturbing epiphany is creeping up on professor and writer. What if they don't want what they think? What if the desires they are conscious of, ones they've chosen as it were, are not their innermost longings, their deepest wish? What if, in effect, they are not who they think they are? Many of us can identify if I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what you ultimately love, well, of course you know the right answer. You know what you ought to say. And what you state could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But would you want to step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? In many ways, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is like that room. It threatens to reveal what we want, which is scary. It revealed what Adam and Eve wanted. They wanted forbidden knowledge, knowledge that wasn't meant for them, that would kill them. So also when we read this story, when we step before the mysterious tree, we are invited into the room. We are invited to be confronted by what we want. There is always the temptation to think we are better than Adam and Eve, to think if I were them, then the fall would never have happened. The mysterious tree helps us realize that this is wishful thinking. At least it does for me. Because when I try to imagine myself standing in front of that mysterious tree, when I read this passage, I find myself getting awfully curious. I find myself wondering just what is this tree and what is the knowledge that it contains. There's a part of me that wants to examine it and be enticed by it, not so much to overcome the temptation, but to bite into it, to experience that rush of knowledge, knowledge the devil falsely promised. It's embarrassing to admit, but that's why I called this mysterious tree a mirror. It reveals things about us that are 
unpleasant and hard to accept. It allows us to understand that we have a corrupt human nature. In nature, as question and answer seven of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, that came from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. A corruption so total and complete that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. This last statement I am inclined to disbelieve. Unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Really? Doesn't that overstate things a bit? Yet, when I stand in front of that mysterious tree, I find it is not nearly as hard to believe how bad my nature is. Things are not the way they're supposed to be, in part because of the bad in me, I realize. That's what the mysterious tree reveals. And it makes me all the more aware of how badly I need a savior. So even though this tree so clearly condemns me, it makes me want to run to another tree, a tree fashioned into a cross. It makes me want to cling to the cross of Christ and his blood shed for me. Before the forbidden tree I stand condemned, my wickedness is revealed. But before the cross of Christ, I stand forgiven. For by his death he atoned for the sins of this world. As the book of Hebrews states, Everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so, when he next appears... The outcome for those eager to greet him is precisely salvation. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we may be confident our sinful nature revealed in the forbidden tree has been forgiven. And forgiven, we may live today with hope and with eagerness for the return of Christ when he shall restore creation and make it the way it's supposed to be. Forgiven, we can say, as our world belonged to God, states, We long for that day when our bodies are raised. The Lord wipes away our tears and we dwell forever in the presence of God. We will take our place in the new creation where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And the Lord will be our light. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thanks for listening.